You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Hey, so this is actually a very special episode because my guest for the day just didn't show up. It didn't even cancel. And I have nothing against that. I have been known to not show up for things at the last minute. And sometimes people are busy and and sometimes people forget things and sometimes people are rude, but they know I'm a forgiving person. We'll, we'll get this guest on eventually because I'm a fan of his. But meanwhile, as Steve Cohen, my producer, who was sitting right next to me, suggested, well, what, what did you suggest? <laughs> I said like how sometimes people talk about how there is a live time and dead time and we could either make the time dead by saying bitching about this person or complaining or or we could choose from the author to choose yourself or we could choose to say hey let's make this the most productive thing we can do and figure out how do we turn that negative into a positive turn those lemons into lemonade right so instead of saying Sherrod, fuck you. Um, Sherrod, you're always welcome on the show. I hope we can reschedule. And you're, you're, you're a friend and I'm a fan. But you know what I want to talk about? I, I, love, I love talking about cultural events that really teach me about creativity and competence and how much I need to learn to really achieve you know, to, to keep on achieving peak performance at what I love to do. And so I love studying everything, everything in art, everything in creativity. I want to talk about uh, what it means to be competent, particularly in the context of the very last concert ever performed by the Beatles. And I don't know if how many people know this, but the last concert performed by the Beatles was kind of almost a spur of the moment concert. They were they were they were performing for their or they were they were in recording sessions for their last album, which was called Let It Be, which had the song Let It Be on it. They were recorded they were in recording sessions and just kind of last minute, it was really sort of last day, they said, um, hey, let's uh let's just go to the roof, bring up all of our instruments, and just start performing on the fly without telling anybody. And it's, I'm glad I, I saved the link for myself because I love this so much. I saved the link for myself and made some notes about this concert six years ago, pretty much six years ago today. And I just clicked on the link just now. And on YouTube, it says, uh, this video contains, there's a black space and this video contains content from Apple Corps and UMG, one or more of whom have blocked it on copyright grounds. So 
I'm glad I had a chance to watch it. I mean, I probably watched it a hundred times at least. And then I wrote down what I learned from it, but I just thought it was such a beautiful concert and has some songs that don't appear on on any of their their main albums. Um, but one thing, one the, the first thing that was so interesting to me is that at the time that they did this album it was January 30th, 1969 in London. They had been together, I think about 12 years. They had performed together for not just a thousand hours, but tens of thousands of hours all over the world at, at concerts, practicing. I mean, there's a famous story in Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers where they would sometimes perform up to 20 hours a day in Germany before any before the world even knew who the Beatles were. That that's how they got their 10,000 hours in is that they performed, you know, for for so long in every single day in Germany. That's how they really got, you know, comfortable with each other, comfortable with their instruments, comfortable with songwriting. Uh, so they they had performed together for so much. They knew each other so well. They were their lives were so intertwined. And yet at this point in in January 1969, the band was essentially dead. Like they they never performed again uh, in the same room together. They hated each other with a passion. I think at the time, and and again, we're doing this podcast on the fly, so be feel free to to comment or or contribute or 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 something on on Twitter or or whatever. But at the time, Paul McCartney, I believe, was was suing the rest of the band uh, over royalties. His his uh, Linda McCartney's father was a lawyer, and and he was suing the band. Um, George Harrison had at this point or a few weeks earlier had quit the band because he was so sick of John Lennon's, you know, trying to dominate uh, the music writing. Uh, Georgia Harrison had quit and he walked out of the recording session saying, um, see you at the clubs. And the band actually thought of, of enlisting Eric Clapton to replace George Harrison. Now George Harrison came back to, to perform on Let It Be and then to perform on the rooftop. But that just tells you where the tensions were. And by the way, George Harrison, incredible songwriter. Uh, uh, While my guitar gently weeps, uh, my sweet Lord, these are just amazingly beautiful songs. So, you know, clearly there were a lot of uh, harsh egos involved. Um, meanwhile, John Lennon was involved in his own stuff. He was starting to record his own independent music. Plus the band didn't like Yoko Ono. That's infamously didn't like Yoko Ono. Uh, there's even a song in this rooftop concert about John Lennon's love for Yoko Ono, and and kind of you could see in the video. I remember seeing they're all sort of laughing at John Lennon when he starts singing this song. Um, and that was he, "Don't Let Me Down," right? Yeah, "Don't yeah. Let Me Down." You know, which is an interesting song because it's you know, and this is why I love them as songwriters. You don't really see songs written this any way anymore. Let's just look at all the layers of that that phrase "Don't Let Me Down." First off. He's singing it to Yoko Ono, don't let me down. Like after he's basically destroyed his relationship with the Beatles because he left his wife for Yoko Ono, he's being vulnerable. He's saying to Yoko Ono, please, you know, don't let me down after all I've done. And, you know, what ended up happening, you know, several years later, he left Yoko Ono for a while uh, and had a relationship with, with someone else and maybe several other people. And he's saying, don't let me, but I think there's additional layers. He's saying, don't let me down to the Beatles. He thought the Beatles had let them, him down. He thought their managers had let, let them down. He thought their producers had, had let them down. Um, he's saying, and he's saying, don't let me down to the world. Like he already was feeling distant from 
the fan base of the Beatles that they didn't really understand anymore who he was. And ultimately, sadly, he was shot. The world did let him down, you know, about 12 years later. And so uh, I think it's just such a, a poignant song and he has so much pain in it. And again, competent professionals, you see, you see while they're singing on the rooftop, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr, they're playing it seriously. Paul McCartney is singing, you know, alongside John Lennon, and it's a beautiful, beautiful song. Why do you think that song actually? That so that song was so Phil Spector, who was producing the album "Let It Be," he he dropped it from the album, even though it's so beautiful. It, it later appeared in compilations of the Beatles, but uh, but but while they were a band, it never appeared on any of their albums, and it only hit number thirty-five on the charts. It was released on the B side of Get Back, which was, of course, a beautiful song. Uh, was Get Back written by Ringo Starr, by the way? Um, I don't I'm think gonna look so. It up. Yeah. Because uh, Ringo Starr wasn't... People always put down Ringo Starr, yeah. like, oh, he was no, yeah. nobody in the Beatles. But um, uh, I think I, he wrote... He wrote a few. Uh, he wrote... I think he wrote... Um, did he write You Know It Don't Come Easy? You know? Oh, uh, no. Uh, Get Back was written by Paul McCartney. I don't know why... Um, I don't know why I always thought it was written by... Ringo Starr. I used to play that as a kid on the piano, and I thought, "Oh, this is Ringo Starr's one song." But I'm wrong. I'm told. I just realized now I'm totally wrong. Um, but anyway, uh, "Don't Let Me Down" was on the B side of "Get Back," and you know, so so what's also interesting is they they I think also part of creativity. It's not just that they were so competent together that they could make a song. It's just that they constantly pushed the boundaries of creativity. Instead of just doing a recording session when they all hated each other just to get it over with, they they basically, in the middle of winter, January 30th in London, they all went up on the roof and started playing. And so you see in the video, it's so beautiful in the video. I wonder how they, they got all these video shots, but you see everybody suddenly start on the ground and other office buildings starts looking up. Like, where's... Is that are they live? Is what what's going on? What's there's that music coming from? And you see men and women leaving their offices and climbing up fire escapes and standing on rooftops to try to get a peek. And uh it's just this amazing thing that you wouldn't you wouldn't expect like Jay-Z right now to right. stand up on top of like, you know, some building in in Midtown and start doing a, a live concert. Occasionally they do. You know, occasionally I, you know, even like Jimmy Fallon and I think some of the roots did like something on the subway or people uh, will do it, you know, just for that kind of shock value. But I think what attracted you when you wrote about this six years ago was just kind of the spontaneity of it and them saying, you know what, let's just go up on the roof, let's do something different. And maybe it was a way to release the tension to get out of a cramped studio and to do it, you know, and just it's 45 degrees over there, you know. I also thought about... But, but think about what you just said, though. You know, it's almost kind of by pushing the boundaries on their creativity by doing this rooftop concert, which... They didn't even know if they could pull off. They had to drag all their equipment there. It was freezing cold. Um, it was illegal, which I'll talk about in a second. And uh, uh, but maybe to diffuse that tension, and that they really did hate each other. There sure. was like sheer hatred. Like they hated Paul McCartney for suing them. They hated when I say they, I mean yeah. everybody but the guy I mentioned. <laughs> they hated John Lennon for going with Yoko Ono and doing his own songwriting and trashing their songwriting. They hated George Harrison for just quitting. Right. Um, George Harrison hated them for always acting like they were the songwriters and not him. Yeah. I don't think Ringo Starr hated anyone. He was just kind of... <laughs> He's probably happy to have been there and happy that he wasn't Pete Best and he was part of it. And um, it's funny, 
when we decide to just do this podcast spontaneously, we're not up on a roof and it's not 45 degrees, but I, I, I've been recently watching the Ron Howard uh, documentary on the Beatles and that spoke, focused more in the beginning. And in just five years, you saw them come up from Liverpool and they were like brothers and Ringo Starr said he didn't have any brothers. So these were all like brothers and they alluded to them working in Hamburg at strip clubs and playing all these hours and just getting real in one room with out of bathroom and how they became so close. And maybe it's inevitable. We've seen it up behind the music, uh, you know, about like how these just the arc of a band where like you, you get really close and then you kind of resent each other. Yeah. Like very know? few bands survive for more than like four or five years. I would say like yeah. all of my favorite, let's say older bands, yeah. uh, don't survive the one. Like, how long did Led Zeppelin survive? Like, their peaks were just like maybe yeah. five years, and then Robert Plant was off on his own. Jimmy Page was off on his own. Now the Rolling Stones, they they're still going strong, and they've been around since 1961. But even the Rolling Stones, they kind of hate each other. Keith yeah. Richards has trashed yes. uh, Mick Jagger in his book, and you know Charlie Watts was always kind of distant. And why well, I, I just feel like it's kind of like when you see Richard Ben Kramer, what it takes, like what kind of ego does it take to run for president? What kind of ego does it take to kind of get up there and be a band and to think you could accomplish all this and to uh, kind That's an to interesting thing. Sorry to keep interrupting. Yeah, no, you know course. I'm an interrupter on the yes, podcast. obviously. But that's an interesting thing too. And we've seen this on the podcast. Like um, who was it who said it? I think it was Paul Reiser who said it, that when you're in the beginning of some, of, of uh, when you're at the very beginning of an arc that's going to be great, like the Beatles were yeah. obviously from 1957 to 1961 when they yeah. were on their first arc, you're almost protected like in in the womb from from knowing that you're not great yet. And yeah. uh, because if they had just started playing and said, you know what, we suck, they would have just stopped. Right. But right. instead, they, 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 they didn't know, they probably already thought they were great, at least good enough to perform in Hamburg and go on right. the road and, and team up. They they probably barely learned. I mean, it's like the Rolling Stones. When the Rolling Stones started, Mick Jagger didn't know how to do anything. He just loved the right. blues mixed with rock. And and there's another point there, which is none of these people. Whenever you hear anyone who's great, like whether it's uh, the Beatles or Jay Z, we just sure. mentioned, or the Rolling Stones, or you know, pick your favorite athlete. Uh, they, it's never by themselves. They all grow up as what I'll call a scene. You know, so when uh, a great story is when um, when Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, you know, I guess it was Brian Epstein told them, yeah. um, you know, you guys need to start writing your own music instead of doing covers. Uh, you know, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were all day trying to figure out a song to write and they just couldn't do it. So they took a walk. Who did they run into? But John Lennon and Paul McCartney, wow. who they knew, they all knew each other since they were teenagers because they all were hanging out at the same skiff clubs in in London when nobody was anybody then. And they said to John Lennon and Paul McCartney, hey, we're having a real hard time coming with our first song. So John Lennon and Paul McCartney went upstairs with them and wrote wow. the, uh, the Rolling Stones' first original song with you know Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. So... So when people, so that's another great example. Like you can't be the best in the world uh, simply by yourself. You you grow up as a, a find your your teammates, yeah. find your Justice well, League of America. Well, speaking of which, you know, like in that same Ron Howard documentary, and I and I was very intrigued with it. Obviously, Ron Howard always, 
you know, brilliant guy and he was very successful and even now he's like profiling. It's not meant to be a commercial for Ron Howard, but if you appreciate it, Ron, please come. And by the way, we've had Brian Grazer on the podcast. That was a great one where he describes how he meets Ron Howard. Yeah, and we also um, loved your book, uh, Curious Mind, and we're waiting to see um, your book on called Eye Contact, which, you know, again, we'll leave the light on for you like Tom Baudet. Um, but I, um, he was very intrigued by the Beatles in the same way that he was intrigued by like, the astronauts because they were these guys up in a shuttle and they were the whole world and them. You know, I think there were so many things that were fascinating about it. But in that, you know, McCartney and Lennon wrote so many songs together and they found their kindred spirit. They found somebody who shared his passion for it. And Paul McCartney talked about how when they were 15 or 16, he'd always go to parties and he would say, hey, I'm a songwriter. And people were like, oh, what'd you think of the football game? And and then he was like, George, John Lennon, in John Lennon, he met a kindred spirit who was like, I love writing songs too. And they, he had somebody who could kind of, you know, challenge him and 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 really help him. And, and it's interesting because yeah. no, no one would ever say, I don't know anyone who ever says they were the best guitar players. Sure. I don't know anyone who says Ringo Starr is the best drummer ever. Well, we saw Quincy Jones recently uh, gave an infamous interview where he said he they were terrible musicians and how... Uh, Ringo Starr was horrible and they would replace him with people. But obviously, you know, if you ask the Beatles when they were at the Cavern Club in the 60s and they were doing their thing, you know, Paul McCartney talked about how he had goosebumps when Ringo Starr came in and what that transformed them. And that was kind of the missing link. So, uh, yeah, there's always an alchemy with these kind of groups and these people. And But 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 it's yeah. important, um, again, to to find your scene. Like, like. You know, people think of Andy Warhol as this very singular, unique artist, but at the time he was competing with Roy Lichtenstein, other artists who were trying to kind of get the pop art, you know, sure. king title. He was competing against the last generation of, you know, Jasper Johns and all, all these artists. And, you know, he had to find his unique thing, but he was still growing up in this scene. He does nobody, you can't remove yourself from the scene ever. And you see this in stand-up comedy, like, you know, who was performing at the comedy store in the 70s? Robin Williams, Jay Leno, David Letterman, you know, and probably most of the comedians who went on to to, yeah. to great, great heights. Uh, it was their scene. They, they bring each other together. Even they're competitive, like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones obviously are very competitive. They also grow up together. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the Steven Spielberg documentary because they talked about him in the 70s and it was him, Brian De Palma, Martin George Scorsese, Lucas. George Lucas, and you know how and George Lucas saved yeah. Spielberg, right? Yes. Like Spielberg yes. was coming off some failures. 19, the movie nineteen forty one, but he tried doing a comedy with John Belushi, and it didn't work. And he was kind of in director's jail, and 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 Lucas invited him on to Indiana Jones, and it kind yeah, of yeah, Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah. So so you know it's kind of funny too. Like I always think. Some there's always elements of society that don't really appreciate when something amazing is happening around them. Like so, the Beatles are coming on to the rooftop for this last concert ever, and they're they're they, it's maybe their most beautiful concert um, because by then they had so much experience, and there's all these new songs. And um, one guy, one guy uh, who was you know everybody was wandering into the streets trying to listen, climbing up on rooftops, but one guy said. Uh, it's a bit of an imposition to absolutely disrupt all of the business in this area. And I always wonder, where is that guy today? Like, what is that guy's name? And what's he doing right now? Is he still alive? Like, yeah. he's famous for basically trashing the best concert ever 
and who is he? And the Beatles are the Beatles. <laughs> sure, for sure. I mean, it, it's probably the version of the troll right now, or there's someone know? always has. Yes. And then someone called the police too. Like wow. the police. So while they were singing um, "Get Back," the police started gathering on the roof. And um, let me see if I can find. The police wanted them to get back. <laughs> Basically, so McCartney says uh, he riffs. He just makes it up in the middle of the song. Um, in in Get Back, uh, you've been playing on the roofs again, and you know your mama doesn't like it. She's gonna have you arrested. And meanwhile, the police are just they're waiting for their their moment. And uh, you know, I don't know. I just think it's like it's interesting. Like a creator can never rest. Like no matter what, they're always trying to push some some envelope. Uh, no matter what's happening in their in their lives. Sure. And, well, I was going to say a few things. I mean, one, you have liked to remark when Ice-T, you asked Ice-T if he kind of sat back. I'll let you say it. But what did you learn from Ice-T about, like, relevance? and? Yeah, so I remember I was on Ice-T's podcast a few years ago. And I at, before we started, we were just hanging out. And I asked him, if you stopped performing stopped appearing on TV, stopped going on tour, how long would it take before people would stop talking about you? And his answer surprised me. He said six months, which I thought was like, oh my gosh, that, this is Ice-T. He's been my one of my hip-hop heroes for 20 years, for 30 years. And he thinks in just... I mean, I remember him on the movie Breakin' in 1983 or 82. Uh, that's where his first appearance was. And, and I watched that movie over and over. Uh, if he thinks just six months, um, what does it mean for the rest of creatives? <laughs> but but it also goes to show you too that we we now live in such a fragmented, uh, creative, fragmented but but also much more creative world. There's so many different forms for for creativity that a I think you can be forgotten pretty quickly. But b if you do something good, it doesn't matter how long you've you've been out of the limelight. People will will know and pick it up. Like like the Beatles have had many bad horrible songs i just can't tell you the name names of any of them but all they had to do was do another good song and then boom they're they're back to number 1 sure and you know I, we just mentioned george lucas i mean some people didn't like the prequels to star wars you know and yeah or any person who like comes out with a lot of movies you do remember the hits and maybe that's obviously encouragement to just keep on going and there's a kind of like combination of factors that lead to success or critical acclaim and you know so i just think you have to just keep creating like you said yes it's totally true airbnb has changed my life if anything they have made my life so much better like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love 
you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours. And they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So I, I at first class. So I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So, you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? 
Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie, and fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. It's an interesting balance between being prolific, where, you know, basically the whole quantity versus quality argument. I think quality is obviously the things people remember, but I think quantity is important because out of that you get practice, you get experience, and and you have the opportunity for one out of 10 songs, books, articles, whatever it is you do, to be super high quality. And it's a comfort knowing that people won't remember the nine out of 10 that might be horrible, but they will remember the, the quality. I always go back and forth on this because yeah. too much quantity could uh, ruin your opportunity to just sit back and take a breather. So it's, I, I, I wrestle with this all the time. I mean, I, I went through a phase of about six or seven years where I was writing actually even longer than that, more like 16 years when you include my earlier finance writing. But let's say six years where I was writing every day. I mean, I have in my archives something like 2,500 articles. And, uh, uh, you know, it's... um, but But I do think it's important sometimes to take a breather. I don't know. Well, it also, I think people kind of like discipline themselves to work every day and to do things every day. And I imagine... Like we like what I think intrigued you about this last concert that you were fixated on it because you could relate to certain things about it. But I think obviously all these great writers or composers they don't always enjoy it, you know. But it's easier when you enjoy it, and maybe you know you're not even realizing it. You, it's a habit like that you really enjoy doing it every day. That's why you're doing it. You're doing it for the sake of doing it. You're doing art for the art's sake rather than any other reasons, right? I mean, isn't that what motivates most of these people to do it. I mean, but then the question is, so they all went off to do their own individual things, but I would say still probably their best work ever was with with the was when they were with the Beatles. And so like take Paul McCartney. I mean, maybe he would argue and I wouldn't argue with Paul McCartney on anything sure. musical, but arguably his best many people would probably think his best work was with the Beatles. How do you think someone like that is still creative but Deals sure. with the fact that his best work was was forty or fifty years ago. Um, well, I think I think like a couple of things. I, I know like one of our favorites, Judy Bloom. You know, I think like whenever she sees people, they were they always talk about her old books and then from people, the seventies. Yeah, but then people are like, "What are you gonna write?" Kids, young. Some people are always like, "What's your next book?" You know, or you know, and so, um, I yeah. I, I think that's a hard. I think we all have to live in the present and hope that you're gonna, you know, get better and 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 just keep producing quality work. And you know, we can name a ton of people who've produced work that may not be as impactful as the other stuff, but it's still it's still really excellent, and they enjoy doing it. That's why they're doing it. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like, Bob, Bob Dylan writes in his memoir Chronicles that in the, he was doing an album in the late 80s. Now, he hadn't done any successful work since the 60s, but he did, he did this album in the late 80s 
that he knew in advance was going to be horrible. Like just people were not interested in that music. He even said he was interested in hip hop and other kinds of music, but he was still trying to do stuff that was creative to to what he, how he wanted to pursue creativity. And he ended up producing a failed album, but it was still what he, what was moving his own personal creativity forward without caring necessarily whether it was going to be a hit or not. Well, you know, we've had, we had Don McLean who created, you know. American Pie. And that, you know, that's one of the most successful songs of all time, and he's still known for it, and he still at close to 70 or, you know, around 70 is creating new things. And I also, you know, and it's something you've talked about with Ryan Holiday, how even after posthumously some things are appreciated more. So I, I don't think creative people are thinking just right in the moment as much. And look at anybody. You can mention, you know, Julie Louis-Dreyfus. Like, she'll never be known for something more than Saturday Night uh, excuse me, Seinfeld or Saturday Night Live, and then Veep is a very good show, or Ted Danson will be known for Cheers, and then Becker comes, and it's still a credible show, and people, if you've never seen those other ones, you would like whatever he was working on, or Bored to Death, or other things, so I feel like we all have to, we all have to do the best we can at that time, regardless if, you know, our best days may be behind us, or, you know, the zenith of creativity, and, you know, you have to, do the most of what you have at that time. What other choice do you have? Yeah, you know? and also I think you know personal improvement happens no matter what. So if you're if you feel you people get satisfaction, not necessarily from millions of people liking their work, um, but if they feel like they themselves are personally improving, and I think you know that's what a lot of you know artists and creatives and and musicians and writers and so on um, you know have to keep in mind is that. That's a big source of pleasure is is sensing your own improvement, whether or not it's it's hitting the entire world. Because we live in such a granular world now, where you know we were talking the other day, all of us in here, including Jay, the audio engineer, about um, uh, computer. There's I didn't know this. There are apparently teams for com- computer games, video games. Like this shows out of how out of date I am, and there or are, how. Jay is video game athletes. There's a $24 million prize pool in the latest like video game tournament. I'm, I'm, and this is a bigger business than tennis and golf combined. Like I'm, I'm incredibly surprised, but, uh, and so, so it must have a hundred million fans at least. So, so, but, and yet I'm not one of them. I think at the time, everybody in the world was a fan of the Beatles. Everybody in the world was a fan of, you know, whoever was the top bands or artists or writers then. And now it's so granular, like, okay, I've got my five people I like on YouTube, my five podcasts I like, my five blogs I like, my five writers I like, and you'll have your set. But every, sure. there's, there's so many more outlets to be creative. Um, you know, I want to, is there anything else you want to add? I, I wanted wanna... to say, if you, I mean, among other things, I was going to probably bring up two things. One, I always liked how Eddie Murphy really admired Paul McCartney because he said like, who were bigger than the Beatles ever? Like who had more fame, more opportunity, more opportunity for decadence? And, you know, and if you look at Paul McCartney now, even he seems very sane, very normal and whatever normal is. I mean, I guess that it's like kind of like that line, the definition of normal, someone you don't know very well, but he could have been like Elvis. Like he could have, you know, and dying at 42 and shooting television sets and, you know, really get caught up in excess. So, and I think somebody like Eddie Murphy, who seems to, you know, and we talked about this with Tony Rock, seems to have kind of been like not afraid of not being able to duplicate his earlier, you know, success. You know, he didn't get up at the Saturday Night Live stuff. He didn't host the Oscars. And, you know, and it's it's something where 
just even just going out there and doing it is pretty amazing. And, you know, that was one thing I always found. I'm wondering what you think about that. Like, you know, just the ability to achieve all that earthly kind of success and yet remain kind of like Rudyard Kipling, you know. Yeah, well, I think, I think, I mean, there's a saying about wealth, which is that um, wealth doesn't, you know, having a lot of money suddenly doesn't change you. It just brings out what was already inside of you and, and magnifies it. So somebody who was meant to shoot television sets and go crazy, that probably was already inside of them and just sheer wealth and excess allowed him to to do that. And Paul McCartney probably deep down was a very, um, you know, put together person. You know, John Lennon had his own things inside of him. George Harrison had a more spiritual side. So, you know, his his original songs like My Sweet Lord is very are very beautiful and, and almost spiritual. Um, Ringo Starr was more low key. So even with massive wealth, he's remained uh, more or less low key. Um, but I, I think, again, I think it's interesting just the focus on competence, the focus on always stressing, st- stretching the boundaries of creativity, uh, always trying to improve. And, uh, you know, and I think they didn't let, per- you know, not letting personal tensions get in the way of your creativity because ultimately people remember the rooftop concert for the music, not for, no, most people don't even know kind of the the nuances of how much they hated each other at this point. And um, I, I just want to close this one. Um, first off, I want to say, if you like this kind of podcast where we sort of analyze something and 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 uh, how it's affected us and our a- analysis of this, uh, let let me know on Twitter. I'm at Jay Altucher and you know tweet tweet about this uh, and or, or tweet anything that I might be missing or if you disagree with anything. Um, the other thing is, I think you know we're always stretching our creativity, trying to find um, different formats for this podcast. Um, we're gonna we're starting a YouTube channel about the podcast, kind of a post game analysis and, and other YouTube channels. Um, so we're always looking at at different ways of doing things. But I, I want to um, end with uh, the most important thing I think the Beatles always had, which is you know the so called beginner's mind, the idea that the best way to you know. Always the person on the steepest part of the learning curve is the beginner. And so if you can keep beginner's mind always, you'll always be on the steep. No matter where you are on the real learning curve, you'll always feel like it's super steep. And you'll find the places where it could be super steep for you and improve the best. And I think at the very end of this con- um, at the end of this concert, uh, the police are all surrounding them. They have to shut it down. It's freezing cold. They've been playing for a half hour. Uh, by the way, you can't even find the YouTube video now, so maybe there's some way that it can come out. Is, it, is the is the rooftop concert on the Ron Howard documentary? I don't, I don't think it was. I mean, I think they. I don't remember it being in there. You, you can know? see yeah. clips of it. Like if you search yeah. "Don't Let Me Down," you yeah. can see they clips. had the candlestick concert. You know, it, in there. Yeah, but the um, so so they're about to lay their instruments down for the last time in their lives together, and John Lennon. The last line the Beatles ever say to an audience. John Lennon says, on behalf of the group and ourselves, I hope we pass the audition. (laughs) Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips, and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. 
That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks.